Good morning. How are you doing today, Cody? Arrow, good morning. Hey, I got to ask you, one writer to another writer, uh, we, we do everything we have to be prepared for going into the day. How did you prepare for uh, sitting down and talking with uh, radio people all day today? <laughs> well, unfortunately, I was up too late last night uh, <laughs> watching Cold. I was watching Colbert because I was on it, and I was just terrified to see <laughs> how it looked. So uh, this morning, I, you know, Barack Obama always plays basketball on game day. I am not a basketball player, but I did go to the hotel gym here in Boston. One of the things that you introduce readers to are the 10 days of battle uh, of the battle for America. How many people understood that these 10 days were very valuable to this nation? Because, I mean, I, I love the way that, that you, are, you are bringing history forward so that we can talk about it. Yeah, absolutely. We didn't know at the time how important those 10 days were because you're just living through them like everyone else and reacting. You know, to, to explain what the book is about, it, it was 10 days in June 2015. Um, that were bookended by, you know, an act of, of racist terrorism in uh, Charleston, South Carolina, where a white supremacist killed eight black parishioners in their pastor in their church. And on the 10th day, Barack Obama went down to Charleston to eulogize the pastor and his flock and, and sang Amazing Grace. And in between, uh, we'd already been working on a bunch of different speeches for potential Supreme Court decisions. You know, the Supreme Court was poised to decide that week whether or not working Americans had a right to health care whether or not gay Americans had a right to get married like everybody else. So all these questions were kind of coming to the fore at once uh, about what is this country about? What do we believe in? Do we actually believe that everybody's created equal or not? And it was extraordinary and exhilarating and exhausting. And I just felt like it needed, it was something that needed to be written because President Obama has always described politics as a contest to determine the true meaning of America. And, you know, we're still living through that right now. We're in, in a lot of ways, we're living through the backlash to, that burst of progress in, in 2015 and beyond. And it's alive. And, and it, how we respond to events, how we get active and organized in democracy really matters and makes a difference. I, what's fascinating about your book is the fact that, you know, you look at today's headlines and stuff like that, and people are thinking that the big change is happening now. No, no, no. In your book, you know, you, the character of our country was in question, like you said, in 2015. That was six years ago. So things have evolved. It just keeps, you know, changing, changing, changing. I'm so glad you picked up on that because, look, America is a, is a continuum. Things are always changing. And I, I, I'm very careful to point out in the book that, you know, the progressive triumphs of that week were not Barack Obama's doing. It's because, you know, people marched and organized and bled for 50 years for marriage equality. People have been working for 100 years for universal health care, and we're still not there yet. I mean, you know, the civil rights movement's been going on forever. Um and what matters is what we do in the moment that we have to make sure that we're just, we keep pushing that boulder up the hill and we just leave things a little bit better than we found them. That's really all you can ask for. And, and over the long run, as dark as things can seem today, the trajectory of America, as President Obama always said, should give you hope if you zoom out and look at it through a wide lens. Mm -hmm. The name of the book is Grace. When you are a speechwriter for the President of the United States, is the first step that you have to be a silent watcher or a silent wolf in the way that you've, you've got to be present, but you've got to experience it before the words hit the page? That's exactly right. That's a great point. Um, you know, we, we would be active observers and, and big readers, and we'd begin every speech process actually by sitting down with the president and saying, you know, what's the story we want to tell? What can you add to this conversation? Where should we where should we take things? Um, and it, it was always really helpful that he was an active and engaged writer on his own. He'd stay up late at night by himself working on speeches longhand and usually taking them to a higher place. 
I got to tell you, one, one of the greatest moments, it's only because I'm a daily writer. I love it that you showed pictures of, of the layout of words and they're scratched out, handwritten in and stuff like that. That stuff just inspires the crap out of me. Yeah, Pete Sousa took a lot of great photos over the years of Obama's edits to speeches. That, and I can't wait for them to all be public so people could see how active he was. Uh, you know, as, when I was a younger speechwriter starting out for him, getting those edits back from him could be, you know, kind of soul crushing. Yeah, I felt like yes. I'd done something wrong. But but over time, you actually learn the opposite. Um, he viewed speechwriting as a collaboration, uh, not just don't give me a perfect draft. Give me something I can work with. And so you come to realize that his edits all over the page actually mean that you've succeeded in that effort and that he wants you to not just work in his edits, but, but, you know, make it better and hand him back a better draft. And all of our best speeches were ones where each draft got better. So how did the two of you work out the timing and the pacing? Because, you know, they say that Ronald Reagan was the greatest, you know, speech, uh, uh, you know, the, the greatest speaker of all time. I, I don't agree with that. I think President Obama really mastered the art of that. I'm not going to argue with you on that point. Um, <clears throat> there is a performance element to good public speaking. You know, it's, it's, it's like, uh, you know, a symphony. Um, you, if you know where the notes are in the music, you know, you, you raise your voice, you lower your voice, you emphasize certain things, you pause. And he was just very good at that. And that, you know, nobody's born that way. I know he worked and practiced, but after you do it about 3000 times, you get a little more used to it. But he, he'd tell me to, to work some silences into speeches. He'd tell me, you know, this sentence needs one more syllable or one less syllable. And, and that's usually the end of the process was once we've gotten everything down, uh, you know, let's just do a little fine tuning and make this sync. Oh my God, you're speaking my street when it comes to when I go in and do voice work for national commercials and stuff like that. I always sit there and tell the producer, I go, look, I wish there was a way that I could put musical notes on this and I need to have something here that tells me where I'm supposed to go. You, you work the same exact language. Yeah, and, and that actually, that came from him. He, he actually used Miles Davis as a way to teach really? me about it. You know, he's, yeah, there was this, this, there was this I'd, I'd written a draft of the State of the Union address one year, and that speech is just a beast. You have to, you know, it's a laundry list of policy that you always say you're, this is going to be the one that's different, and then just inertia catches up. But I'd given him a draft of the State of the Union address, and he called me up to the Oval to talk about it, and he said, look, brother, everything is, everything's in here. Every sentence says something. Every word means something. But all of it's up at a 10. And I need some of it down at like a, you know, four, six, and eight. Uh, you feel me? And I was like, yeah, I guess so. And he goes, let me put it another way. You do, do you listen to jazz? And I said, not really. Uh, he said, all right, well, he said, do you listen to Miles Davis? And I was like, you know, I, I'll put Miles Davis on sometimes when my girlfriend comes over. And he said, all right, well, the point is, uh, what they say about Miles Davis is it's silences. It's the notes you don't play. It's the spaces in between. And I need some of those in this speech. So Tonight, I want you to go home, uh, pour yourself a drink, listen to some Miles Davis. Don't do any work on the speech, but just just listen and find come back here tomorrow and find me some silences. He, it was cool when he dropped a lesson like that with music. I call those wine glass moments, and it's so funny that when I sit down with these authors that are releasing these books and stuff like that, I, I'll go, man, it's really cool that you've released this book and everything like that, but you got to tell me about a wine glass moment where you, had, you finally gained the courage to go in there and change something in the book. Did you have one of those during this book? Let's see. In, in the actual book writing process, or back when I was in the West Wing. Well, how about both? Let's go both because I mean, the, the writer in that White House versus the the author of this book, Grace. I, I, I believe it or not, I really think it's two different people. Uh, it is. It is. It totally is. And you know, I, I guess I had for me, it'd be a bourbon glass moment. <laughs> um, <laughs> but yeah, you know, especially in, in writing the book, it was it wasn't difficult to find my own voice, but I was just so immersed in his. 
yeah. uh, after writing for him for 14 years to, to, to kind of break that and get into it. it was interesting. But I, you know, I get to be a little more colorful in my language in the book than he is a little blunter about things. Um, but, you know, I also had the benefit of him again, you know, he read an early copy of the book and unfortunately only offered one edit, but uh, annoyingly it made the book better. So I, I've been blessed with the opportunity to talk with a lot of people from the U.S. military senators and things like this, and they have to go through an editing process by the U.S. government. Did you have to do that as well for this book? I did not, no. Um, I made sure that, you know, our lawyer read it over and whatnot, but there's nothing classified in my book. There's no sensitive national security information or secrets or anything like that. Wow. Facing those moments when you guys had to decide, is it time for the president to speak? I mean, I mean, I can't imagine what your anxiety level must have been like. It, it, it was up and down depending on the day, you know, in this, in the, in the 10 days I talk about in this book, it was an open question as to whether the president would give a eulogy in Charleston at all. And at first he didn't want to, um, and you know, selfishly, neither did I, I didn't want to have to try to find the words for the 15th time he'd speak after a mass shooting. Um, <clears throat> and we had a pretty heated debate in the Oval Office with a couple of advisors who thought he should, and, and he and I thought he shouldn't. And, you know, at one point he basically yelled out, I, I have nothing left to say because he'd just done this so many times and Congress made it clear we were never going to do anything about guns. Um, even though I don't want to be cynical, states have done a lot of good things on, on gun violence and gun safety in the years since. But he said, I don't have anything left to say. He looked at me and said, do you? And I said, I really don't. I, I just don't. I can't think of anything to make this different. But what did change things was uh, down in Charleston, the families of the victims forgave the killer on live television yep, in his arraignment. Sure they sure did. Which was just extraordinary. And it's, you know, anyone who's steeped in AME church tradition, that probably wouldn't be a surprise to them, but it was a surprise to me. And Josh Ernest, the press secretary, was the one who suggested that as, as a kind of the central theme of the speech. And the president said, you know what, um, you're right. I do want to go down there and hug those families. I'm not convinced I want to speak yet, but if I do, it's going to be about the concept of grace. Yeah, yeah. It, that, that story touches my heart so much because I'm here in Charlotte. That guy who did that mass murder came into Charlotte early in the morning, was not even a mile away from our house. They eventually caught him in Shelby. But to know that he was that close to us here, we didn't know what the next step was going to be. Uh, we just knew that there was somebody on the run. Yeah, yeah. And then and then it affects yeah, we, the nation. Yeah, it does. You know, we knew we we always knew a little bit more than cable news just because we had direct access to the FBI um, and they could come brief. But, but as it, as it became clear, you know, who the killer was and, and what he deluded himself into and that he'd self-radicalized so easily, it was a pretty horrific thing. I mean, it's a good thing they caught him so quickly, but um, you know, it, but for those families to forgive him like that was just something I, I didn't think it's a faith that I wouldn't be able to summon in my own life. Um, but uh, to be able to work it into his speech was a real blessing. You know, one of the things is that why why has history not given us these photographs and the stories and stuff like that? Because it, it's like that was one of those moments in American history where we all became united with, with President Obama being down there in Charleston. And it's like we have other pictures of other bad moments. Why Why aren't we symbolizing this as well where we came together that, yes, we are the United States of America? That's that's exactly why I wanted to write this book and remind people of that, you know, that that it's it's not hard. It, it, it's it's all too rare today to find grace and right. and, you know, especially in our politics and things like joy and humor. Um, but they're important and they're not really all that difficult to rekindle if people try. I mean, cynicism is a difficult thing to break out of. And trust me, there are plenty of times I've felt cynical the past several years, but 
that's why I wrote this book to, to blow up people's cynicism. I want people to read this and be inspired again, you know, and be ready to run through brick wall for democracy and, and remember what we're capable of, um, especially young people. I want my students and other, and other people in college and high school to read this. And I wanted to do for them what, what books did for me, which is convince them that politics is a worthy endeavor in which they should pour their efforts and they can actually be fun and it can, it can be collegial and it can be joyous and you can inspire people. Uh, and I hope that's what people take away from grace. Teaching political speech writing. I'm, I'm, I'm blessed with the opportunity to be with future broadcasters, but they all think they're stars right now. Do you run into that same situation where it's like, yeah, yeah I, I get what you're <laughs> saying, but yeah, I, I got it. I got it. Sure. Yeah. I, you know, I, I'm fortunate enough to teach, I teach seniors at Northwestern university, which is where I went to college. Um, and there are a couple who try, you know, we just started a semester and there are a couple who try right off the bat to be Abraham Lincoln or John F. Kennedy. And I try to try to try to break them of that and say there are there are moments for which that's appropriate. But the speech you're writing right now is not one of you actually would be better served by speaking colloquially to people, by talking to people on the level, talk, tell, talking to them where they are, using mm-hmm. a little inspiration. Yeah. Um, and making that connection to to who's receiving this. Exactly. You got to think about your audience. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, if you're if you're president of the United States, your audience is really the entire world. But but there are multiple audiences in there. You know, there are the, there are the people in the room, there are the people watching at home, there are stakeholders who care passionately about certain issues. Uh, and you have to find the right balance to talk to everybody. And uh, that's never that's never easy. What happens when the president gets off the script? I, I can't imagine what that does to you. You know what? I came to love it. I really did. Really? He was, he was, yeah, he was just, he was great off the cuff. Um, you know, the, there's a day in 2013 when and this was just a few months after Newtown where, where 20 little kids were murdered in their classrooms mm. along with this, six of the teachers who were trying to protect them. And um, the president set his second term agenda aside. He'd just been reelected and decided to try to do something about guns and knowing that the, the makeup of the Senate just wouldn't allow for it. Um, but there was a little ray of hope, you know, you had, you know Joe Manchin and, and Pat Toomey, who was a conservative Republican from Pennsylvania. The two of them teamed up, you know, bipartisan, uh, and they both had A ratings from the NRA to try to do a background checks bill that 90 percent of the American people supported. Most people thought it was already the law. But Republicans end up blocking a vote on it in the Senate while, you know, the parents of those victims were looking on and. That was about as cynical as I've ever seen a president get. Mm. And, and one of the three times I've seen him angry and and he went out to he was going out to speak and I'd written a, a statement for him to give him the Rose Garden. And he just he grabbed it and looked at it real quick. He said, look, I'm going to take this and I'm just going to kind of use it as a guide. Uh, <laughs> but I'm going to say what I but I'm going to say what I want. I'm going to I'm going to uncork a little bit. And I was like, great, because you know I was angry. I'd written it angry. He was angry. I said, just go let her rip, man. Um, <laughs> But it was fun, you know, and especially when he's out in political rallies and, and my, my instinct is you're going to see him on the campaign trail in a couple of weeks. Um, he loves to uncork a good comedy routine. Yeah, yeah. He loves he loves to rip on rip on people. So it's, it's always fun to watch him go off script. <laughs> the journey toward progress and hope starts with leadership. And President Obama was a great leader. The thing is, is that aren't you part of the imaging of the president when you put those words out there like that? Um, sure, but we tr- we never tried to look at a speech that way. Okay. Less, it's not less as imaging, and it's it's more active. You know, what are a, a captive audience is a wonderful gift. What are you going to do with that gift? What can you inspire people for? It's can you actually change people's minds? Um, you know, the the, the Charleston UG was built around Amazing Grace, which was a song about a slave, you know, written by a slave owner who changed his mind and, and 
President Obama's, you know, we know a speech isn't going to change everybody's mind. Right. But we always approach it as if we could change one or two. And he rewrote that eulogy, and I talk about this in the book, um, around the lyrics to Amazing Grace and just left open the possibility that, you know what, if we've been blind to certain issues, if we've been wrong, it's okay to change your mind. I mean, that's what makes America better. What makes America unique and great is that America can change. And that's the way he always approached the presidency, and that's the way we approach speeches. Wow. The book is called Grace. Now, between us, do you have PTSD? Because that would be a freaked out case. Not anymore. You know? No, I kind of did after the White House, but I decompressed, and writing this book was really cathartic. Good. Um, You know, I've got a baby, so I don't sleep well, but otherwise (laughs) I'm okay. I love it. What's next for you? Uh, I'm going to keep teaching. You know, the semester just started. I've got my own speech writing firm. Uh, and uh, we stay active in politics with a bunch of great candidates and progressive causes. I love it. Please come back to this show anytime in the future, Cody. The door is always going to be open for you. I, I really believe it. I appreciate it. Thank you, man. You bet. You'd you, you be brilliant today, okay? All right. right, we'll do.